Welcome back to the Chartwell Chronicles. I'm Colin Davis. And I'm Brittany Atkinson. On this month's podcast, we're going to discuss compensability and what it actually means when it comes to work accidents and workers' compensation in New Jersey. Just a reminder, Chartwell is more than just workers' compensation insurance defense. We have 30 different state admissions and 24 office locations, which you can easily find on our website at chartwelllaw.com. When we talk about whether an accident is compensable, what we really mean is did it arise out of the course and scope of the employment? And there's really two parts to this. So the first part is arise out of, and the second part is um, in the course and scope of. And you need to satisfy both of these um, in order for a claim to be compensable. And what we mean is um, when we talk about arising out of, we're really talking about what caused the injury. Um, And this refers to the risk, um, or like I just said, the cause of the injury. In order for the accident to be compensable, the injury must be due to a risk that is incidental to employment. And and we'll get more into the details of this as we go on um, today. But um, the second part, the course of, this element really refers to the time, place, and activity of circumstances. So here we are looking at whether the employee is doing what he should be doing at the appropriate time and place. And again, we'll get more into this as we go on today. The best way to present this topic is to break these down into two parts and go through them separately. So let's start with arising out of. Here we're looking at the cause of the accident. There are typically three types of risks of injury, those directly associated with the employment, those risks which are neutral, and those which are personal to the employee, which will further break down as we go through this podcast. And so the second part um, in the course and scope of employment, um, this is the second prong that has to be met in order for the case to be compensable. So first, you do have to satisfy a rising out of, which Colin just mentioned. Um, so you have to satisfy the, the causation part of it. And then you also have to satisfy the second part, the, the course of employment. Um, so here, again, we're looking at, you know, time and place. Is the employee doing what they should be doing at the appropriate time and place? And the basic rule is that once the employee reaches the place of employment, they are within the course and scope of their employment. And this is referred to as the premises rule. So employment starts when they arrive on the premises and ends when they leave the premises. But of course, with that comes a ton of exceptions and special, special rules, which we're going to get into Um, because the employer's premises is really not limited to just areas that they own or um, maintain. So we're going to talk about control and the different exceptions that come with this role. And that's probably where we're going to have the biggest back and forth uh, agreement, disagreement throughout this, because that's the most open to interpretation, in my opinion, of this area. Wouldn't you agree? I agree, Colin. Um, so I think first we should do the easy one, the causation part, you know, the, the risks, the, um, you know, what causes the injury? Is it incidental to employment or is it something that's personal, personal um, to the employee, um, in which case it wouldn't be compensable? So Colin went through, there's, um, there's three types of risks of injuries. Um, those that are associated directly with employment, these are your obvious ones. You know, they're hit by a forklift, uh, pulling a trailer door down and tweaking their back. Um, these are, you know, the, the very clear ones that, you know, have to do with their different work activities um, and obviously are compensable. And these are the ones you know that are going to get reported pretty quickly as well. I mean, you're lifting at work, you hurt your back, you tweak it, you go right away. You get, you get, you're driving the forklift, you're opening the trailer door. Those things, the obvious ones, that, which are associated with employment. So th- those, these are pretty easy. I don't think we need to go into depth on them. But but the one that does get questionable is the neutral risks. Those aren't as obvious. Uh, The example we like to use for this one is if someone is otherwise doing what they are supposed to be doing the workday and they are struck by lightning, 
this is compensable because while the lightning strike was completely unrelated to the activity, it's considered a neutral risk. And here the court will apply a but-for test. I totally agree with that. Um, but this is also very different to the third type of risk, um, risks that are personal to, to an employee. So while, while Colin was just talking about a lightning struck being completely unrelated to employment, um, that's something that's neutral. That's out of the, you know, the employee's control. Um, those are still going to be found to be compensable. But something that's personal to an employee is not going to be found to be compensable. So if the injury is caused by something that has just 100% to do with the employee itself, um, then the court's probably going to find that it's not um, covered under workers' comp. So an example is, um, and this is actually case law, um, where an employee was shot by a former boyfriend while she was at work. This was actually held to be not compensable. So while the gunfire may have been unrelated to to the employment, um, it was really due to her relationship that caused the accident. Um, and this was a personal risk. And the court found that this was actually not compensable. This, this is actually an area where one of my absolute favorite pieces of case law exists. And that's the case on Russian roulette, where a guy was playing Russian roulette at work and shot himself and died. And the court went, no, that's not compensable because it has no relation to work whatsoever. And I, it, I think that I can't believe that case even made it to an appellate level to have a decision made, honestly. <laughs> but I think there's a fine line too, Colin, because then we can get into, and which we'll get into this later on in more detail, but um, like horseplay. I mean, sometimes, you know, horseplay, there's a fine line between what's covered and what's not covered. Very true. And the, the other, uh, the other issue that falls under this as well is the idiopathic injuries where you're not necessarily responsible for a pre-existing injury such as a heart attack, maybe a seizure specifically, but if the person has a seizure at work and then falls and bangs his head on the way down, we are going to be responsible for that head, that head injury and what results from that, but the seizure itself will not be compensable. And that can get a little, uh, in the weeds as well, because how do you know what was caused by the head injury, what was caused by the seizure? But traditionally, the courts have found that the seizure itself will not be compensable, but the injuries on the way down will be. I agree. That's what I usually find. I've, I've actually had cases um, where um, it's, you know, it's a knee claim and their knee buckles as a result of a pre-existing injury. But on the way down, they hurt, you know, another another body part. Um and in fact, there was a specific case and I'm thinking of when they were walking up a set of stairs. So anything that involved the knee was not compensable, but, you know, going down, hitting your elbow, that was actually compensable. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting area, the idiopathic injuries, because you think right away they're not related, but you're forgetting that the other, other outcomes of it when you fall can be related. I agree. So, I mean, this all really goes with, you know, the first element that has to be proven in order to find a case compensable. So once you get through finding, you know, whether causation um, has been established, you know, that first part arising out of, um, then you move on to the second part. So you have to have both of these to actually make a compensable claim. Just to interrupt real quick, I would say of the two prongs, the arising out of is the much easier to prove. And typically we jump to the second uh in the course and scope of employment is the one where you have much more of the debate of whether it's related or not. I agree. That's always, it's always much easier to establish the first part. 
So when we talk about um, the second part, um, I had I had really just mentioned that an employer's premises is not limited to areas owned by the employer. And this is really important to remember because sometimes, and there's a lot of exceptions, the courts will also look at what activities and areas are controlled by the employer. So maybe they don't own or, um, or own or lease these areas, or maybe they don't even um, maintain them. But if it's controlled, then we're looking at issues with compensability. Um, and depending on those facts, um, we're going to have to determine whether or not that's something the courts would find would be covered under workers' comp. And and what is considered exclusive uh, exclusive control or owned by? That's that's kind of open to interpretation because there there's some case law that looks pretty straightforward, but then there's ways to get within the argument, find something compensable or not compensable. And we're going to go through a lot of examples today showing you what we mean by that. And I think the biggest area of um, for this topic is parking lots. Um, you know, traditionally, like you get injured in a parking lot, it is not covered by workers' compensation, except when that parking lot is owned or maintained by the employer, or if that employee may have been directed to park in that lot, if that employee, um, if whatever control the employer has over, over directing that employee to go park there, that could really affect um, a compensability argument. Don't you agree? I, I agree. And the, the, the control and the ownership of the parking lot, that's pretty easy. You, you work for, say, a, a landscaping company and you park on their pro, on the, in their parking lot. But say you work in a, like a an strip office mall, building. A, an office building or a strip mall. Several different offices throughout that building. Right. And that while that property may not be owned by them specifically, they'll they'll say you have to park in this little corner over here. But I've seen even the argument where the employer doesn't necessarily direct the where the, the petitioners where to park. However, petitioners park all in the same area and they may believe that's where they're expected to park. And that's a tough argument to overcome, I find, sometimes with the judges. You really have to flesh it out. Were they directed or did they just assume they were to park there? No, I totally agree. And it actually brings up the next topic. Um, so if they're directed to park in this lot and then they're sort of injured on their walk to the you know office building or the job site location, whatever it might be, the court might find that an injury that occurred during that walk to the employer's, you know, premises um, is actually also compensable. And I've seen it where, you know, maybe they tripped and fell over, you know, a, a, a parking uh, block um, over, you know, a raised sidewalk, the tree limbs, anything. Yeah. And I've seen those to be found um, compensable if the employer has anything to do with where they're parking um, or if the employee is really perceiving that this is where they should be parking. Sometimes, you know, like Colin just mentioned, that that gets in the way. And the, the one thing I, I the and it's it's worked once or twice for me, but usually these parking lots that they park at are pretty close to the actual building um, that they work in. But sometimes those parking lots can be a pretty far ways away and you have to walk down a public sidewalk. And that's where it gets real questionable because in the past, courts have said uh, that a public sidewalk is uh, – someone getting hurt on public sidewalk is not compensable to work injury. But depending on the judge, they may, they may disagree because you told them to park in this parking lot that's further away from the office than, say, other parking lots that they want to park in, but you direct that. So they're walking further because of your decision. And it's sort of um, 
comes to the next um, example, that's a very, you know, popular issue, I feel like the going and coming rule. And, you know, this is seems very easy, you know, routine travel to and from work is not compensable. So soon. So, you know, going back to the premises rule, once you leave your employer, and you are driving home or walking home, whatever it may be, no longer compensable. Same thing for coming to work on your way to work, not compensable. But with this comes so many exceptions. Um, so you really have to look into the facts and get specific with these. Um, right. Most recently, um, I've seen, you know, transportation to and from work. If there is, um, again, any control by the employer, the judge is probably going to find that that's compensable. And when I mean control, did, you know, was the employee reimbursed for any part of this transportation to and from work? Were there other employees? That's a big part of it um, on this transportation to and from work. Um, did, um, was it a shuttle service? Was it sort of an Uber? Was it anything that was that the petitioner could perceive as being expected to be controlled by the employer? I think all those facts could really affect whether or not that's held compensable, don't you? Right. And an easy example. So Brittany and I are both attorneys. Us driving to the office and getting in a a motor vehicle accident on the way to the office, that's not going to be compensable um, pretty clearly. However, there are, uh, say, um, employees who work for landscaping companies, cable companies, phone companies who take a work truck home. And that's where it gets questionable. Is that drive from home to the work location compensable and i i'm starting to see a lot of the times the judges are finding an example like that to be compensable as opposed to colin not to interrupt i mean not to interrupt you but i think the most important fact that you just stated in um, your example was the the truck being owned by the employer are they in a company truck i think that affects the argument um completely I, I would agree that that's probably the biggest difference between you or I driving to work and getting in an accident versus someone in a, a branded a branded truck or car. Now, just because it's branded doesn't mean that's the only reason it'll be compensable. You could have a work car where your, your work pays for your car and it's just a standard like a standard sedan or SUV. And that they could still make the argument that's a work benefit. So you're you're within the course and scope of employment. I agree. And I also think that there's issues that arise when you're reimbursing employees for mileage, um, reimbursing them for the cost of transportation. Um, be careful with that because that that will affect this, um, you know, being successful in a going and coming rule. Another one that it may squeak into a couple topics in the future that we do, but I think it's important to mention here is if we are paying for transportation to a doctor's appointment for a petitioner and they get in a motor vehicle accident, that will be held compensable by the judge and we will be responsible for any of those injuries because we are providing the transportation for petitioner for a work-related accident doctor's appointment. Now, Colin, that's, that is a really interesting point. Have you ever seen um, a claim and I haven't yet, so I don't really know how it would work out, a claim for injuries that occurred on the way to a doctor's appointment, um, but but they were not getting reimbursed or the transportation was not provided. Okay, so in Joe, I'm just going by myself, not being paid for. Correct, yeah. So you're going to your authorized medical treatment appointments. Do you think that, that would be compensable? 
I that see I think I could make an argument that it sh- it it may sh- it should be I I think if uh say your appointment was during the middle of your workday and you were doing it on your uh, doing it and you took some time off to go to that work at the work related doctor's appointment I think you might have an argument but say you're leaving from your house in the morning going to the doctor's appointment I don't think that's related so I think the the facts of that specific example are important where you're where you're as the rule states going and coming I I don't know how do you feel I would argue it's routine travel it's no different than them going to and from work um, but I can definitely see a judge sort of balking at the fact that they are, you know, they otherwise going back to even the but for, um, you know, but for this work injury, they wouldn't have been driving to these authorized doctor's appointments anyway, and then finding it compensable. I think it could ultimately result in maybe a section 20. But I mean, if it's a big accident and, you know, with significant injuries, I, th- I think it, I, I think it could definitely depend on your judge and really have to be fact specific. Yeah, I think fact specific and the more severe the injury, I think the more likely they'll want to relate it, even if it's a tenuous causal relation. And I think the more the, the worse the accident is, the harder we would have to argue it's not related. I think the the on paper, we have a strong argument not related because we're not paying for any transportation. We're not providing it. But I, I definitely see that being harder. Like if, if you're going to the doctor for a foot injury and you get in an accident and you hurt your back, it's different. It, you may have to be able to different. So it's not the same body part. But again, it's very fact specific. And I, I think under that scenario, I think they might have a new claim for the back. I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if petitioners. Well, I'm sure they would try to. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I could see it. And it, it's a tough argument. I, we on paper, we definitely have case law saying it should not be compensable, but I could see a judge saying, ah, it's related maybe, but section 20 out just to be safe. I agree. And I think, um, and I don't know if we were like super, uh, really clear on this, but um, so obviously routine travel to and from work is not compensable, but if you are traveling to and from different job sites, um, that is compensable. Um, but there are scenarios where accidents occur during those, you know, traveling to and from work sites that could found to be not compensable. And this is how I want to sort of dive into uh, minor or major deviations. So, um, major and minor deviations, a minor deviation, compensable, major deviation, not compensable. And so what, what we're really looking at here is, you know, what would be a reasonable abandonment of employment that it would be considered to be minor and therefore compensable? Um, minor deviations, um, these are kind of easy for the most part. Um, lunch breaks, you know, these are compensable under the personal comfort doctrine. Um, this would include, you know, coffee breaks or a bathroom break. But a major deviation um, would include something, you know, personal errands. So I want to get back to the example of traveling from job site to job site. If you're traveling from job site to job site and you stop, and there's actually case law to support this, if you stop for a personal errand during that, um, that, that could be found to be a major deviation. But what's so funny is if you're stopping for, you know, a cup of coffee or you're stopping for lunch that might still be considered a minor deviation. But if you're, you know, there's case law that says if you're stopping to pick up your mail, that is a personal errand and that is considered a major deviation and not compensable. Yeah, it's, it's definitely an interesting, the, the, uh, there's actually a whole, a whole slew of cases on what they call a lunch breaks. And it, it, 
it's interesting because you would think dropping off mail is could take less time because all you're doing is pulling into the post office, dropping it in the bin and driving away. That's maybe five minutes out of your way, but you could stop and grab lunch real quick or grab coffee. That could take longer than the mail and the, the courts have found it to be compensable. So it, it's these are all very fact specific and you can even get it into, uh, into the weeds more because like say you're a delivery driver and you're driving, you do a couple couple um, houses and you happen to pass your house on the street and you stop at your house real quick, run in and on the way out, you tweak your ankle or something. You're still on your route, but I would argue that's a pretty big deviation because you stopped at your house completely unrelated to work. So it should be considered not compensable, but I could also see counsel uh, making the argument, well, I was just stopping to go to the bathroom real quick and my house just happened to be there, or I'm grabbing uh, grabbing a sandwich, uh, changing my, out of my work clothes because it's like this summer, that there's just an article on delivery drivers struggling with the heat. Maybe they change clothes, something like that real quick. It, 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 there's a lot of examples that look like major deviations I could see the court saying are not. I totally agree with that. And I think under those circumstances, like testimony would probably be necessary um, if we weren't looking at sort of a small section 20, but it's, it's what's going to be, you know, reasonably considered to be a personal errand, um, in which case the court would find that it's a major deviation. And again, it's going to depend on your judge. Um, You're going to have to know your judge and know, you know, the facts before you get in, you know, into taking testimony, because that could really end up um, either way. And I, I think a lot of the times when it's a major deviation, a lot of the times it's pretty obvious. You uh, you uh, you went somewhere, and I know a couple a couple of these delivery companies they have their their uh, trucks on GPS, so we can just request that information to be provided provided and show. Look, okay, this is where he was driving on his route. This is where he went off the route, went thirty minutes this way, and then came back onto his route, what was he doing in that 30 minute time period? So there, there's a lot of different ways we could find out to make the argument it's not compensable with the, especially with some of the technology that can benefit us in a, in a case like that. Um, it sort of brings up just like a memory that I've had on, on a case that our office handled in the past um, with someone stopping at a bar And then, you know, on their way home from the bar, they, you know, they were injured and, you know, their blood alcohol content was, you know, or rating was up. And it was a fight with the court because they were trying to argue that this was something that petitioner always did was after work, stop at a bar with a couple of buddies and have, you know, a few drinks and then go home. So when the petitioner was involved in this accident, they were basically trying to say, that um, this should be found to be compensable. And um, I, I think he was also in a work truck too, if I remember. He was this, in a work truck too, that's correct. Which further complicated it. Yes, so that just added to basically their argument. But we were successfully dismissed, um, but it was, it was definitely a fight. And that is definitely something that I think will depend on the judge and um, sort of takes us to our the next defense, uh, alcohol, the alcohol defense, which is very, very difficult to prove. Right. You have to that, prove that it was um, the sole and proximate cause of the accident, which is, you know, almost impossible for us to prove. Yeah, it's, it's, it's virtually impossible. I mean, 
because you were either le- you were leaving work, you were in a work tr- a work car. Okay, maybe you had you had some beer. I mean, to say that the alcohol, even though it on it looks everything like it is, it's in- almost impossible. I would say to to sh- I don't know anyone that's ever wa- won on an, the alcohol defense. It's I think it's easier to show a major deviation that he stopped at a bar than it is to say, oh, it's the alcohol completely. Yeah. And I could even see arguing for um, major deviation, even if, you know, they, on their lunch break, they're drinking, you know, unbeknownst to the employer, they're having some drinks. I mean, to me, that's also a major deviation from employment. Right. And then that could lead. So you drank on lunch, you came back to, to work and then you were lifting a box and hurt your back. Okay. You may have been drunk, but you still got hurt because you were lifting a heavy box. The alcohol did not necessarily was not the only contributor to that accident. Yeah. So that's, I I think you're better off. I mean, in under those circumstances, I think lifting of the box would be hard to get out of, but you know, if they were, you know, slipped and fell after their lunch break, um, as a result of, you know, drinking, then I don't know. I think we would have a better chance at arguing for a major deviation. Yeah, the, the like I said, the alcohol defense. If someone hits on that, I, I I would be shocked. I think there's if 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 to get to that point of a defense, you've had a lot of other better arguments. Another good example, which uh, people don't realize that falls into the major minor deviation, is I've only seen this one way, but I've thought about it as I've said this, the other way. So you clock out of work and you walk to your car. That, the, the courts have said, is a re- you have a reasonable amount of time to clock out of work, get to your car. So if, you're, if you slip and fall on the way to your car, as you're leaving the parking lot, you get in a motor vehicle accident, that's likely, that's going to be compensable. But then there's the scenario, you clock out of work, you hang around for 20, 30 minutes in the parking lot talking to somebody, and then as you're leaving, you get in a motor vehicle accident. So there's there's a much more a much greater amount of time between the last time you worked and when you left the parking lot. And how do you feel about that example? I would say absolutely not compensable. Um, first, I would argue coming and going. I mean, that, that to me, that's routine travel to and from work. Um, you know, slipping and falling right after you clock out of work on the sidewalk in front of your employer, I mean, I would still argue that that's also not compensable because you're clocked out for the day. Um, and if that sidewalk is not owned or maintained or controlled by the employer, I would say that that's also not compensable. But I think that that's a much better argument than getting in your car and then leaving. I think it's way too far removed. I, I would agree with that too. Like I said, that that more pertains to the direct uh, a parking lot that's owned by the employer and whatnot. Well, but did, the other- the, did the motor vehicle accident occur in the parking lot? It did actually. It, it, so the per, the petitioner left work there. It was questionable. I think it took about 15 minutes for her to leave work. And then as she left, she was hit by a car. And we have taken the position that it, it, sh- it should be denied. But I think but that was based on very limited facts. And now that more facts are coming in, I think it's we're going to at least we're authorizing the treatment because it's it's appeared that it was way less time per the police report. So the facts are very important because initially it sounded like it was a long amount of time, but then the police report corroborated it was almost instantly. It's funny because I constantly get, you know, the claim that comes in that says 
Um, this was denied, not compensable. They were clocked out for the day. And that just really goes to show you how important the facts are um, in between clocking out and then, you know, the time of the accident. Because again, the, I mean, it really could sway the argument. And so the one I just thought of is now we're always talking about you clock out and leave. Well, what if you're scheduled to work at nine o'clock, but you come in, say you traffic's light one day and you get in, you park at 8.15 and you're, and, you're, and you're walking to work and you'd be 45 minutes early. Are you in the course and scope at that point too? Because it's well before your day. I think that that would actually really depend again on, you know, the parking, like, you know, who owns, controls, maintains the parking lot, whether they're directed to go there. I don't really think clocking, I don't, I, at least I don't see it. I don't think the judges give too much credence on clocking in and out. I think it has to do more with whether they're, you know, I don't know, whether they're, you know, under the premises, whether they're, more so um, that analysis than really, you know, the clocking in and out. I just, I have a hard time winning on that argument ever. I, I would have to agree because the time, I mean, the time clock, whether it, whether it says it is, whether it's not uh, 10 minutes, five minutes, the, the, the premises is the bigger thing. And unless, unless it's a major deviation, like you hung out in the parking lot for an mm -hmm. hour, two hours, you'd have an argument. Yeah, but did you go into work early to, you know, hang because, out with some people or, you know, talk or catch up or right. you know, is it routine for you to go in early, you know, on certain days when maybe, you know, your kids are off to school early or you, you know, there is light traffic or something like that. So I think all that will definitely play into whether or not you're successful. And this actually parlays into a pretty good, uh, another example is you're fired at work or you quit. And an employee who fought, is fired or quits his employment is deemed to be within the course and scope of his employment for a reasonable period while he winds up his and her his or her affairs as they're leaving the premises. And the court was very clear on this, but they used it, the phrase reasonable period. Well, that could be a <laughs> lengthy that amount. What does mean, right? <laughs> reasonable to me is get all your stuff and leave. But I mean – Maybe you have a laptop and that's it. You could have to clear out your entire office and it could take you two hours. So they they use reasonable, not a a, a def definite, oh, 15 minutes, which is why you mentioned the clocking in and out is kind of irrelevant. Yeah. So unfortunately, if you do terminate somebody, they're still sort of on your uh, your responsibility until you know, they're, they're off the premises, I would say. So even though they're no longer considered an employee, they're, they're still considered an employee for workers comp until they, you know, leave the premises. Well, let, let's get into a little bit of a fun one now. Um, horseplay that, uh, <laughs> that, that could be a lot of things. I mean, that could be fooling around. You're just messing around. You tap somebody on the shoulder and they happen to slip and fall. Um, that that's probably not going to be considered Horseplay, but like some some court examples are injuries uh, in employment resulting from horseplay by fellow employees, not instigated or taken part by the injured party, are compensable. So if two if two employees are fighting, they that those that fight might not be compensable. But if that fight spills out and a third person gets say punched, rolled up in it, and gets hurt, the court that's going to be compensable. I always, um, I had a case like that uh, many years ago and it was um, the instigator. So the person who initiated the fight, you know, punched another guy 
And then, you know, then the victim, they were both employees and the victim punched the instigator and it was found that the, and then the instigator was the one who actually got injured. But then, you know, we pulled up video surveillance and found out that he was actually the instigator. And because of that, he, this was not a compensable case. Had it been the other way around, the judge might have found that it was compensable. I always found that to be sort of interesting that, you know, it depended on who started it. Right. It, it it's very interesting. And there, there's another there's another case that the and this one's that the court uh, courts decide a petitioner was actually injured while riding a motorcycle right before the end of the day. The motorcycle happened to be in uh belong to one of his co employees and the person and the petitioner who was injured was riding without permission. So the court found that this was a total deviation with no connection and it wasn't compensable. So the, the horseplay can can really benefit you if you can show it as a major deviation and that person was truly messing around. But the second the people involved in the fooling around, like say that guy would have hit another employee with the bike, I have no doubt that that party person, not a party riding the bike, would have been compensable. Oh, I agree. And so what about the situations where there's horseplay like, you know, during lunch? And, you know, maybe they're playing a sport. I mean, maybe they're playing, you know, a quick soccer game or, you know, there's guys that are out, you know, working outside and they're, you know, picking up a football, throwing a football around, something like that. I've actually found that the courts will find those injuries sometimes compensable if it's um, routine for them to sort of pick up the ball and throw it around or, you know, I I, I forget the specific example, but there was um, a situation where, um Guys were on their lunch break, playing a sport, and someone got injured, and that was actually found to be compensable. I I could see that uh, a court absolutely finding that if like every day you knew okay at one o'clock we eat lunch, we play soccer in behind the building in the field on the employer's premises, and the employer's aware of it. If they're not if they don't come out and say hey guys we don't want you playing here we're worried about you getting hurt I think the employer might have an argument it's not compensable but if they're aware of it and it's going on on a regular basis I I could see the court finding that because you're 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 on your lunch break I mean I think it is a deviation but I I I'd be hard pressed to come up with a strong argument uh, that the judge would really agree upon re- unless something drastic happened in the game. Like maybe if, if you left the premises and walked to a field mm-hmm. down the road, that I could say not related. But if you're right on the property, 30 minute lunch, it, it, that's tough. That's going to be a tough one, which sort of brings up um, another example. So same, I don't know, the employer encourages you, doesn't require you to be involved in a softball league. And after work, you and your coworkers go and you play softball and you're injured. Is that compensable? I'm going to put on my petitioner hat here. Are we playing in a, <laughs> are we playing in a work league where we're playing as say the Chartwell softball team? I, I see petitioners maybe making an argument. I don't think that's compensable at all, but maybe if you're in your work uniform, like if you're playing in a work jersey, somebody would absolutely try to make that argument, but I don't I, see it. I think as the employer, it would be really important to specify that you are not required to participate in this league and that this is not the, you know, the Chartwell Law team. I, I, I would agree, but say, I know like a lot of these bigger companies um, in the spring mm-hmm. or the fall, They'll have like a company-wide picnic 
uh, in the middle of the day or, and well, like that's almost like good example. or like a field day event like we used to have in elementary school. And I think anything that happens at that would absolutely be related because it's a work sanctioned event. And I agree and with you'd, that. Be, you'd be hard pressed to find it uh, a deviation. It sort of goes with, um, you know, traveling. So if you're in the type of employee that has to travel, um, you know, even fly to different states, if you, you know, your company puts you up in a hotel room, that kind of stuff. Um, those are really hard to argue that any, that, you know, an injury that occurs during any time of that trip, that's really hard to argue. It's not compensable. And um, what you're, what you're referring to here is by the courts considering, uh, considered a special mission. And the way that's defined is an injury occurred on a special mission will be compensable if the employee is required to be away from the conventional place of employment and the employee is actually engaged in direct performance of employment duties. Now, the first part of that prong, easy. You work in New Jersey, you fly to Florida. We hit that prong and you get hurt in Florida. The one that's more uh, tenuous is the employee is directly engaged in the performance of their employment duties. Now, if you're selling your product and you happen to slip and fall as you're in the, a plant somewhere, that's going to be pretty clear. But what, when, say, you're driving, driving from your hotel to the plant or you're sitting at dinner and on your way to your bathroom, you trip and fall, that's where it, it really becomes an issue. And how have you seen – have you had any cases where the courts made a comment on that type of issue? Yeah, I mean, I've seen in the past, um, you know, the, the big one for that situation is dinner. Um, they go out to dinner. And again, you know, they're, you know, basically have no choice but to go out to dinner because now, you know, they're in a state that they don't normally live. They're staying in a hotel. Um, so, you know, that injury that occurs while they're walking to the bathroom during during dinner, is that compensable? I would argue no. I would argue that you're not in your course and scope of employment. I would argue that it's a, you know, it's it's not, you know, personal comfort doctrine. I, you know, I think it would be different if you were in your hotel room and you were injured. I would think that, you know, we would have a very difficult time arguing that that's not compensable. But how to me, and I would make this argument, how is that any different than if you were, you know, out to eat here and um, you got injured walking to the bathroom? I mean, just because it's after a work day, it's, I, I don't know. I don't, I would argue that's not compensable, but I could see. I, so it's funny you say that. And, I, and my position is too, if you're out to dinner, but the first, I actually recently sat in, uh, a, I was not conferencing a case. I was listening to other attorneys while I was up in court talking about a very similar example. They paid for the petitioner to go somewhere. He was eating dinner and got hurt on the way to or from the bathroom or leaving the, uh, the dinner and the judge's first question was, well, who paid for the dinner? Was it the employer or was it petitioner on his own? And once it found out the employer paid, the judge was like, well, then it was in the furtherance of his employment because petitioner was being reimbursed for that meal. So the judge ultimately uh, found that, that it should be compensable. However, in this specific case, they were able to section 20 because there were some other issues with it. But the ju the judge's first question was who was paying for it? And I think that's integral to uh, the uh, outcome of those special messages, who is directing payment. I totally agree. And I think the whole reimbursing um, an employee for certain things really does um, make it hard to argue that they had no control um, and that it should not be compensable. 
So, you know, when you are reimbursing an employee for certain things, you know, travel, um, I mean, as far as a bus ride to and from work, um, be careful because the judges really do um, find that specific fact to be sort of a, a big part in finding the case compensable. Right. And, and one thing I'd say that I keep learning, even with these going coming rules is as it's never, it's not, it's such a broad area, but every case is so fact specific. And even looking at the case law, every fact can be the same except one little feature and the court could find the polar opposite on compensability. So the more you know about, the more information we can get about the case, the better. And some of these often, not often, but sometimes you're, you will be needed to take testimony because you need to flesh out some answers you're not getting when there's a gap in information. I totally agree with that. And just to recap, too, um, all of these different um, special rules and that we were just talking about, they go to the second prong. So, you know, when Colin said, you know, the first one, the causation prong arising out of, that's really easy, um, typically easy to establish. It's really this second prong that that you could really get in the weeds. And that's why we need all the facts so that we can, you know, argue um, successfully that a case might not be compensable. I, I completely agree. And there's, there's so many more top, more issue, more examples we could go into right now, but uh, we want to thank you for uh, joining us on this month's episode of the Chartwell Chronicles. And we hope that you subscribe to wherever you get your podcasts and we look forward to uh, next month's podcast. Thank you.